This podcast is produced by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society. CDSS provides programs and resources like this podcast that support people in building and sustaining vibrant communities through participatory dance, music, and song. Want to support this podcast and our other work? Visit cdss.org to donate or become a member today. One and a half around. Now below one couple and four with six. Look around to the right when you balance. Look around to your right and you balance once again. Swing your partner. Hey there, I'm Mary Wesley, and this is From the Mic, a podcast about North American social dance calling. Nicely done. Through conversations with callers across the continent, we'll explore the world of square, contra, and community dance callers. Why do they do it? How did they learn? What's their role on stage and off in shaping our dance communities? What can they tell us about the corner of the dance world that they know and love the best? Each episode, we'll talk to a different caller, but they all have something in common, a spark, a desire to lead, to share joy, to invite movement, to stand in that special place between the band and a room full of dancers or people who don't yet know that they're dancers. And from the mic, say, find a partner. Let's dance. Welcome back to From the Mic. This month, I'm bringing you along with me to a cozy, snow-laden house at the end of a dirt road in the woods of New Hampshire for a chat with David Millstone. This is a house I visited over 15 years ago when I was first exploring the idea of becoming a caller myself. It's always a treat to visit. David started contra dancing with Dudley Lothman in the early 1970s and has been calling dances for 45 years. Contras, old and new, squares from different regional traditions, English country dances, and plenty of family-friendly events. He's been on staff at dance weekends, festivals, and week-long camps from Alaska and Hawaii, Maine to Florida, as well as in nine countries in Europe. He served for 12 years, including six as president, on the governing board of the Country Dance and Song Society. As a dance historian, he's published, spoken, produced videos, and created websites that celebrate different aspects of country dance and music. David has spent countless hours documenting other people's stories about dancing and dance history, so I felt grateful that he let me turn the mic towards him for a change. I hope you enjoy our chat. David Millstone, hello. Welcome to From the Mic. Hi, Mary. It's great to see you. It is great to see you, too. Um, Here we live two hours away, an hour and a half away from each other, and we hardly ever see each other. It's been too long, yes, and uh, there have been times when I've been on the the 89 corridor and driven by and waved in your direction, but this time I got to stop and come over to your lovely home. Um, 
I'm always excited when I get to do these interviews in person, which is uh, not often. Um, so grateful that that's happening. I'm also having a lot of memories coming to your house because it was one of the first places I came when I was a brand new, I wasn't even a caller. I was just, I had a, had a, you a should go thought. talk, you should go talk to this guy. Yeah. Rebecca Lay said, you should, you should look up David Millstone. <laughs> and it was, uh, and you gave me a great pep talk, a great boost, lots of thoughts and ideas for me to go take away and, and look at you now and think about. And, uh, yeah, so you are definitely, uh, you know, prominent figure in my my origin stories, and you are an amazing dance historian, documentarian, and does it feel different to be on on the other side of the the microphone here? Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I was uh, I was on New Hampshire Public Radio a month or two ago talking about this new project that that we'll probably talk about, and I commented to to the woman running the interview i said you do interviews well and you know the the part of my brain that knows that you ask a question and then you just shut up and you let the person talk and you keep shutting up and you nod just as you're doing now and you're not saying anything it's like all the things i learned from not doing them the tricks of the trade well i am excited to you know, get a little bit more into your your personal background as a caller, which I know some of, um, but often we're talking about, you know, other other callers, in, you know, people who've influenced the style over time, but I'm really excited to kind of, that's usually where I start in these interviews is kind of, kind of to go back and ask, where did it all begin for you? Um. I knew none of this stuff as a kid. Um, when I when I was a kid, I had obligatory piano lessons. The first piece I played in recital was "I Can Play with a Metronome," and I'm told that what I did is I went up and started the metronome, and it went, and boom, I was into it. <laughs> My teacher told me afterwards that you know you can let it go for a while while you adjust yourself at the Anyhow, um, in high school, a family friend came to visit, and he played guitar and sang folk songs, mostly songs from the American labor movement. My dad was a union organizer. And so I was in high school, and this guy came with a guitar, and I thought playing guitar was pretty cool. And so I learned to play guitar, and in college I was playing in sort of generic folky stuff and had a radio show on the campus radio station, the Ethnomusicology Hour, where I played old bits of folk music, and then moved to New England, moved to New Hampshire in 1972. Where did and, you move from? Oh, well... Um, <laughs> I had lived, after college, I had lived in Chicago, I lived in Denver, I lived in California, I traveled to Mexico, got sick, came back and stayed with my parents in Pennsylvania, which is where I grew up. And then a friend from New Hampshire, a college friend, came down and picked me up and I arrived. 
early January of 72 in the middle of a snowstorm, and it felt right. Uh, I had loved being in San Francisco. I mean, how can you not like living in San Francisco? I had a job, blah, blah, blah. And you could do anything any time of year. If you wanted snow, you could go to the mountains. If you wanted the ocean, well, you could just ride the trolley to the ocean. But um, it was when I got here in the middle of a snowstorm that it just something rang deep in my heart and it felt like coming home in a way. I grew up in north central Pennsylvania where as a kid, if there was a lot of snow, it would be up to my up to my calves. Well, I'm a lot taller now, so to be up to my calves, you have to go to New England. Anyhow, I came for what was going to be a two-week visit, and that was in January of 72, and here I am. And in that first winter, some friends up here dragged me to my first dance. Um, it was I'm sure it was a Dudley dance, Dudley Loffman, um, somewhere in the Concord area. I can't tell you where it, where it was. Um, and I loved the music. I just I just was caught up in the music. A woman came up and asked me to dance. And I feigned a leg injury because I was so embarrassed. I was not, I mean, there are kids in high school and college, you know, who are dancers and it wasn't me. My, um, so, so I got through that first evening without having to dance. And then... Um, Later on, housemates of mine took me to a dance, another Dudley dance, this time in South Stratford, Vermont, which was the regular local dance that Dudley did with his wife at the time, Patty, once a month. And I fell down the rabbit hole. Um, it was initially the music that I just loved the sound of the music because I was already playing. I was playing in a generic folky band up here. Um, as the years went by. But unlike sort of rock and roll or swing where you needed to have certain moves, it was the appeal of someone telling you what to do, a very common, very common phenomenon. And early 70s, the vocabulary of what to do was a lot smaller than it is now. I mean, you could be an experienced dancer and you would know 20 moves. And so I danced at that dance regularly, and moving into the 70s, there started to be other dances around here that I'd go to, and became a pretty serious contra dancer with some squares mixed in, um, and also whatever came along. I mean, the dances back in the day were wide-ranging. So you do contras, and you do squares, and you do Sicilian circles, and I learned Dutlebska Polka, which is a Czech folk dance, and I learned Levi Jackson Rag, and just this wide variety of stuff. And of course, that's part of what's shaped my way of looking at things to this day, of that kind of variety makes for a much more interesting evening. So that's when I started dancing. I was playing in a band, up here in the 70s called Sugar Maple. Uh, I was playing mostly guitar, but a little electric bass and had built a hammered dulcimer. Um, so I was playing dulcimer. And we'd get hired to do parties. And th this was generic folk music, everything from bluegrass covers to old time to jug band to whatever. But anytime we played something that was kind of upbeat, People would start yee and stomping and elbow swinging. And 
at a dance New Year's of 76. The people who hired us said, oh, and could you teach some dances? Um, so I went to a friend and got a couple dances and taught some dances, and it's been downhill ever since. <laughs> downhill. <laughs> right. And then in 1980, there was a band called Northern Spy that was starting up. And they asked whether I wanted to call dances with them. And so in uh, November of 80, we had our first dance. There was another guy in the band, Jeff Lambden, who played banjo and called. And I played hammered dulcimer and called. So he'd call for the first half and I'd play and then we'd switch roles. And after about a year, he decided he'd much rather play than call. And at that point, I pretty much put the dulcimer away. I knew I could either work hard at the dulcimer and become a mediocre dulcimer player or work hard at the calling and become a competent caller. And so for five years, I didn't touch the dulcimer, and I've really never have picked it up since. Um, and so Northern Spy and I ran this monthly dance for 35 years till 2015. In Norwich, and, uh, we started. Uh, we start, <laughs> We started at the Carter Community Center in Lebanon, New Hampshire, in the very first dance. The band outnumbered the dancers. We had fourteen people in the band, um, <laughs> and so some members of the band would get down on the floor to fill out the hall. And then after, I don't remember, a month or two, we moved. We found a hall in Etna, New Hampshire, in a, a lovely little church hall. And we had the dance there for many years. And it was a hall that worked well when there were 50, 60, 80 dancers, but we were getting up to 100, 120, and there was no room. And at the same time, the church also wanted to reclaim the hall. So that's when we went looking. And then we moved to Norwich eventually, and the dance is still going on in Norwich. So second Saturdays of the month for many decades, it was... I was the caller, and Northern Spy was the band, and there are pluses and minuses to to that sort of arrangement. So that's where I developed my contra calling chops. Mm-hmm. Was was it common at that time for for a band and a caller to to work together as a team? I I know you know Dudley had Canterbury Orchestra. Yeah, well, Dudley basically had. He'd hire two people. He'd hire a, a piano and a fiddle, and then anyone else was welcome. And that's what led to that huge exodus of the diaspora of contra dancing, all those people who had played with him. In New England, there's, an, I think, an old model of a band owning a series. And you still see that Wild Asparagus has their series. The Lamprey River Band still has their series down on the seacoast of New Hampshire. Northern Spy had its series the the model elsewhere and now the model most places today I think is you have a committee running things and they're bringing in bands and talent but that it's certainly traditionally there'd be a a square dance caller who would have his band it was almost always a he um, have his band and Frank Fortune had his band and Willie Woodard had his band and so on so um, I think back in the day that was that was pretty much the case it was pretty common today I think it's much more rare and and I imagine as it's something that you're learning to do and working at as you're describing that that maybe having that one consistent factor 
of working with the same musicians regularly could could oh, give you a baseline. It's really helpful. Yeah, you can write notes on your card. This dance goes really well with this tune, and we know, you know, blah, blah, blah. Joys of Quebec works really well here because there's a balance at the start of the B, you know, just when the tune, and so you make notes like that. Um, as a caller, it's wonderful to have your own series because you're not just thinking in terms of that night. You know, we all as callers, you know, oh, we'll we'll put this, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll do a chain here, a, a lady's chain, um, here in the evening. And later on, that'll just be something that everybody knows and we add to it. But you can think in terms of a series. You can think, oh, I'm going to do this figure and then next month I can use that figure in a different way. And two months after that I can do this dance. Um, and there's the people coming know who you are. They know what to expect for better or worse. And presumably if they keep coming, it's for better. So you're a familiar figure. Uh, it's fun to work with the band, figuring out what's going to work well together. You know what the band's strengths are. And and you can play to that. And so that as you know, one of the caller's jobs is to make the dancers happy and the other is to make the band sound good. Um, so, I wonder if you can talk through a little bit of, about your process of learning to become a caller. You know, were, were there any aha moments, stumbling blocks? Oh, lots of stumbling blocks. <laughs> <laughs> I was... I was um, starting in the in the seven, and then especially in 1980 when I started doing this regular dance, there was another caller in the area, a woman named Ruth Sylvester, no longer with us. And Ruth and I were both sort of getting started as callers at the same time. And I don't know that we ever made a formal agreement, but basically we ended up coaching each other. She'd come to my dances and I'd go to her dances and we'd give each other feedback like, you know, were you aware that the first three dances in a row all started with neighbor do do or balance and swing? Your Duh, no. Or things like, when you said, blah, 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 we had no idea what you meant. But then you said, blah, 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 and it was like, ah, so you, uh-huh. And you take your card out and you write a little note to yourself and you change the wording on the card. So that was really helpful. And Ruth and I were... We're both at somewhat the same. We were both starting out learning to do this. She had a much longer history. Ruth was going to Pinewoods. Her her mom was a Pinewoods person back in the 40s. So she had this long history. Um, but as a caller, it, it was new for her as it was for me. So getting that kind of peer-to-peer -peer, um, support, sort of as you did up in Burlington with your callers collective, where you were all sort of equals in the process, helping each other through it. Um, my first caller was, was Dudley, so obviously I picked a lot up from Dudley. And I learned the, the example I always use. There was a time in my calling where I'd say something like, everybody swing your partner. And at the same situation, Dudley would say, all swing. Everybody swing your partner, eight syllables. All swing, two syllables just cuts through the, the chatter, the clamor. It just it cuts through. And Dudley had spent years working in schools, 180 days a year, without PA systems. 
So he had learned to hone things to the to the bare bones of what was needed, and that was really important for me to learn. Um, as a dancer, I really appreciated callers who could explain things precisely and quickly, because um, I was young and hot to, hot to trot on the dance floor, and standing there listening to someone go on and 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 on, like, come on, we want to <laughs> dance. And so when I became a caller, both for for contras and squares, and then particularly when I moved into English dance, that was high on my list of something I wanted to bring. I wanted to bring contra dance brevity to to my presentations at the mic. And then in the late 1970s, we invited Ted Sinella to call our local dance. There was a dance that was being sponsored by Muskeg Music, which is still running the monthly dance in Norwich. And we invited Ted to come up, and he did a callers workshop. And there were three of us who attended, Ruth, myself, and one other guy. And we had a full hour and a half callers workshop. I still have the notes. Um, and meeting Ted was this eye-opening experience. I mean, Dudley, Dudley called a relaxed evening. That was his goal. It was, it was a party. He just sort of hung out. And so the model that I had, not just from Dudley, but from other callers in the 70s, was they'd call the dance, and then there'd be three or four or five minutes. They'd be either mentally or physically shuffling through their caller's box of cards, and you were talking, and it was a very social occasion. And Ted came in with his program, written out in advance, with the alternates picked, alternates that were a little more challenging and alternates that were easier to plop in, with the tunes already selected based on having listened to the band's recording or looking at their tune list. It was like, oh my God. <laughs> Ted was a pharmacist. He was organized. <laughs> and it was a completely different model. And of course, as a dance leader, he was he, he was extraordinary. I mean, and so to this day, when I'm up at the mic and something happens, I you know, the WWJD, what would Jesus do? I have the what would Ted do? Um and that's that was the first time I heard of the KISS principle, you know, keep it simple, stupid. And there's always that moment as a caller where you're up there, oh, I've got this dance that's a little bit harder, but oh, they're going to love it. And this dance, which I know they can do, which is easy. And if you're in doubt and you pick the easier one, you're always going to be safe. And there's always that part of me, oh, but I can teach them this one. And sometimes I can, and sometimes I can't. And it's like... Oh, Ted. <laughs> so those, Dudley and Ted were really the two main influences. And and in some ways, Larry Jennings in a different way. Uh, but that's that's a whole other thing. But those those two really, I think, shaped, shaped my calling. Mm -hmm. Giving me, I mean, from Dudley, that whole sense of it's a party, it's fun, and precise bare bones instructions and from Ted really thinking about the evening as a whole figuring out what figures you're going to introduce where when you introduce variety when you put the squares in when you do the mixer how you follow a complicated dance with something simpler or completely wacky um, 
Yeah, I miss him. And he's and 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 Ted is the person, in many ways, in a roundabout way, responsible for my becoming an English caller because he, he and Jean would come and do dances here, and he'd stay with Sheila and me. And Ted, for years, would say, "You need to go to you need to go to camp. You need to go to Pine Woods." And then in 1987, he said, David, I've been talking about this enough with you. You need to go to Pinewoods and you need to go this summer. And so, okay, Ted. <laughs> so exactly. Yes, sir. Uh, so I looked at the list and there was this thing called English and American Week. Friends, Ruth in particular, had been urging me to go to Pinewoods for years, um, but she didn't have quite the same standing. And Ruth had been pushing me. A few other people said, David, try English. You'll like it. I tried it. I didn't like it. I tried it again. I didn't like it. There'd be sessions somewhere, you know, a special event of English country dancing for contra dancers. I went, yeah. So I looked at the roster for Pinewoods, and there was English American Week. And being a hardcore, snooty contra dancer, I said, all right, well, I can go. I'll do the American dance. I'll show people how to dance. Uh, I'll have a great time. And I'll put up with this English stuff and, you know, get through it. And there were two moments during the week. One was in um, Dancing Well Hall, and one was Dancing Mad Robin where I had those aha moments. Oh, that's what this is all about. And that's when I fell in love with English and then later on started calling it. So Ted was the one who got me to Pinewoods and without that, I probably never would have gotten into English. And, and at this time when you were, you know, building up your skills as a caller, experiencing different styles, how, do you have a sense of how you saw yourself and kind of what your aspirations or, or drive were? No, I just wanted to call. I mean, I had this local dance, this, and it was great fun. It was something I did every month. I, I wasn't, at that time, I wasn't thinking beyond that. I was very happy. I did, I did parties. I did weddings. At this point, I've done, God knows, hundreds of weddings. Um, I did some family dances, sort of school stuff. You know, I was a school teacher, and the school I worked in, Norwich, had a very strong music program, which included dance. So we'd teach Haste to the Wedding and the whole school and parents. We'd have 400 people on the green in Norwich dancing Haste to the Wedding around the tree that used to be there as part of our May festival, and coached sword dancing as part of the Mummer's Play for our um, Christmas show. Um, but no, I was very happy, happy doing that. And then, yeah, probably late 80s into the 90s thinking, wait a sec, all these people are getting hired for camps. I'm not getting hired for camps. Why not? I, I, I'm a good contra dance caller. And so I did a little, uh, not criticism and self a little introspection and, and pulled out my latest copies of the CDSS News I had joined back in 87 when I went to camp because I 
learned that that's the way to make sure you got into camp was to be a member. And so I turned to the back and looked through who are all the people on camp. Oh, well, uh, Steve Zacon Anderson is there. Ah, Steve calls contras. I do. Uh, Steve also teaches waltz, and he can teach um, vintage dance of some kind or tango, something like that. Well, Lisa Greenleaf. Oh, Lisa also teaches squares, so-and-so. Oh, they also... And I realized if you call contras and that's all you call... You're not going to get hired for camp. You need something else. And so I thought and said, well, I'm going to become an English caller. Um, and I looked around. There weren't many people at the time who did both. Brad Foster, of course, Scott Higgs, handful of other, Susan Kevra, a couple other people, but not many. And so I said, I'm going to develop English. So in 93, I started calling English. And sure enough, in time, I mean, now I get hired probably more to call English. But being able to do both and and squares, uh, my my love of squares is only strengthened in recent years. So you never know where it's going to take you. No, absolutely. You know, like stay open to what the universe hands you. Mm-hmm. And so you described your your introduction to dancing, coming to Dudley dances, where there was a wide variety of figures and styles happening on the dance floor was your when you started your dance with northern spy i imagine it, it echoed that same yeah they were they were i mean the, the, that was 1980 the repertoire was starting to expand but up here i wasn't going down i i, I don't remember the first year i went down for nefa but i wasn't part of the boston scene where ted and tony parks and tony salatan were actively calling and Ted was dramatically changing the, the landscape of what was possible in the contra dance world and and all of them, Tony and Tony Parks and Ted in the square dance world. But yeah, I was calling mostly contras and some New England squares and mixers. Both Tony and Ted we're big on having a mixer third dance of the evening. You don't do it first because there are still people coming in. You don't do it second because there are still people coming in. You don't do it fourth or fifth because by then people have sort of figured out who they want to dance with. But third dance of the evening is a great place to put a mixer in. And circle mixers add variety of formation and something different. Um, and so that became just a feature of what I, what I would do. Um, and... As years went by and I started to travel and go to Nefa and pick up dances. And at that time, of course, dance picking up dances, would you, you'd be someplace, someone would call a dance and you'd immediately scribble it down. You know, now people come up and say, can I get that dance from you? And I say, yeah. And they take out their phone, take a picture of the car, the whole business of writing down a dance. It's like, oh, that's so archaic. Um, so, yeah, building up a repertoire at this point, I've got, well, I can show you, I mean, you know, probably a yard's worth of index cards, uh, most of which I will never get called. Uh, how many dances do you need? And the same thing with, with uh, family dances. I mean, there's always more and more dances, but you don't need for family dances. You know, people say, you know, I need to build up my family dance repertoire. I say, how many do you have? They say, I've got maybe 15 or 20 that I can call really well. I say, you don't need any more than that, you know. But I think many callers, myself included, have a 
collector's mentality and, you know, oh, that's a cool dance. Yeah, let's do that. And I'd love to be able to go through and winnow. So how many dances do I need with this particular? No, there's got to be one that's like the best and just stick with that. But And there are, at this point, there's a, a small subset of dances that I use over and over and over again. I remember George Fogg, the great dance leader from the Boston area, was talking to George. George called English. And I said, George, how do you how do you set your program for your various dances? He says, Well, I figure out for this year, this is what my program is going to be. I said, What? He says, Well, yeah, I can do that. I'm teaching in Texas, and then I'm teaching in Kentucky, and then I'm teaching here. And there he says, So I have my program for the year. And it was like Whoa, what a concept. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, you know, and if you're traveling around a lot, you can you can you can do that. If you're calling a local your own If you're local calling your own local every month, right. not so much. Well, it, especially in the in the contra dance world, uh, as people back in the day, sorry, I need to change my foot. I remember back in the day <laughs> because the repertoire was so much smaller when I started in the 70s. It was the chestnuts and occasional dances from Ted or Tony that had worked their way into the repertoire. But that's what I started out. And yeah, so if you did chorus jig every month, people were, oh yeah, we know this dance. And that's certainly the traditional square dance. People, a, a given caller would have maybe 15 dances in their repertoire and that's what you dance. Now there really, there are serious dancers who want something new and different all the time. Um, it's, I think Dudley has called it the consumer mentality, and you, you start to see that. Uh, used to be the dance, it's, it's the different, Mary Dart in her contra dance choreography thesis goes into that. It's the difference between a community dance and a, and a dance community. And at a community dance, you can call the same dances over and over, and people in the community know them and like them. And the dance community is a much more self-defined people who define themselves as dancers. And that's a, a part of their identity as, as a dancer. And they're looking for something different. Did you witness that shift from community dance to dance community at your dance yeah. locally? Yeah, ours ours has stayed more of a, has more of a community dance feel, and um, and again, I think part of it was it was just the same old band, it was the same local band, and the same same old caller getting older, um, and there were there were dancers. I remember one guy coming up to me saying, 
This was a, a, a fellow who had started at that dance in Norwich. And he came up and said, this is the last dance of yours I'm going to come to. I said, oh, he says, yeah, I'm going to go down to Greenfield on, on a Saturday night. Um, he said, I just, he said, you're too friendly to beginners. And, and I thought, okay. I mean, he wanted, he had moved. That was a change. Someone who came, who got pulled in from that welcoming community, simple dances, starting out the evening and gradually working up to a little, a little bit harder and then fading off. But he had gotten to the point where he was a, that kind of a dancer who wanted the, wanted the challenge. And I said, well, I said, well, sorry, we'll miss you. But I'm thinking, I'm not going to miss you at all <laughs> with that attitude. Uh, Dick Crum was a international folk dance leader, taught a lot of Balkan dance. And he has a, a classification of dancers. And it, it's like four levels. One is beginning dancer knows nothing. Um, experienced dancer knows everything too good to dance with beginners. Hotshot dancer knows absolutely everything too good to dance with anybody. And advanced dancer knows everything, dances with anybody, especially beginners. And a lot of people get stuck on that level two or level three. Um, and I went through a period of being a hotshot hot shot dancer. That was the attitude when I went to Pinewoods in 87. That was sort of the attitude that I was bringing with me. And then you realize um, the joy of getting new people out onto the dance floor and having fun and making them have fun. Yeah, as you've seen, you know, the variety of, of dance experiences that are available to people just kind of widen. Um, and you kind of seems like you choose your path through that of where you want to kind of put your your energy and your time. I definitely have experienced you as, as a champion of keeping those connections to, to the roots, to kind of the, the history and enjoying the stops along the way that Petronella used to be this chestnut that was done to the, to the tune, the same tune and in the same way. But then you have really done a deep dive on, on sort of tracing all these little steps in the evolution of, of choreography, of music. Where, where did that interest of, I mean, I really see it as like a historian's yeah. approach to, um, to dance traditions and dance culture. Where, where did, did that, that come, come from? from? Um, in part, I think it's because I started when I started and where I started. So I started when the repertoire, the contra repertoire, was a traditional repertoire. So that's that's in my bones. Um, and as over the years, of course, as that has faded, or in other parts of the country where it never existed, um, it's part of me. So obviously, it's it's important to me. Um, I think it's also dancing in New England. The line that I often use is, you know, we're dancing in church halls and grange halls that have held dances for 100, 150 years. And when you're dancing 
chorus jig in a Grange Hall, that dance has been done in that hall to that tune so many times over the decades, we'll say decades, over the centuries, at least a century, I like to think that there are dust motes floating around in the air that still carry the vibrations of it. So when you're dancing a dance like that, in a place like that, you are physically, it's like the latest incarnation of keeping that tune and that dance alive. I mean, that sounds a little mystical, and I'm not a very mystical person, but um, when I dance some of the older dances in these older halls, I really feel uh, a connection with dancers who have come before me. Um, I love a lot of the new stuff that's being written, and I call a lot of it. I think a lot of people say, oh, David, he just calls that old, the old stuff, and I... I would like to say that I call a lot of pretty cool, hip, new new dances. Um, but I also like the older stuff. And I'm aware as I travel, when I'm on staff at camps or calling a dance somewhere far away, that other places who don't have that rich tradition that we in New England have, it's not that they're, they're not drawing on that. Um, I remember... Ernie Spence and his wife Joan, who were mainstays of the Boston scene for years, they're the ones who took Kate Barnes to her first dances in the back of their station wagon. Ernie and Joan years ago were out in California visiting a relative, and they decided to go to the local dance, and the sweet young thing taking admission saw this older couple come in. Now, Ernie and Joan had been dancing since the 40s, um, they started with the Methodist World of Fun series, um, and they danced regularly with Duke Miller and with Ralph Page. So they walk into the hall, and they pay their money, and the, the person behind the door treats them a little bit. You know, it's this older couple. Well, what we're going to do tonight is called contra dancing, and there's going to be a caller teaching it, and they're just... Well, yeah, is that so? Oh, okay. Um, and then since they were there early... The host took it upon herself to teach them a little bit about the background. Says, so what we're doing tonight is called contra dancing. It's a dance form that was invented in California about 10 years ago. And they're there. Oh, is that so? Just you know, sort of nodding. So you're aware that there are places where this is all imported, especially contra dance. I mean, square dancing has far deeper roots throughout the country. Um, but contras is a relatively new phenomenon. Um, so I'm, I'm interested in seeing, I, I did a project where I was tracing the, what well, I ended up calling the Contra Dance diaspora. How did Contra Dance spread throughout, throughout the country? And that was collecting stories from people all over. And, um, done, I've looked at the, the changes in choreography and how that relates to the change in society and the way the dancing is. I mean, when you look at Ralph Page's books, he's talking about, you know, long ways, six to eight couples. Well, you can have a long ways dance that's six to eight couples, and it can be very unequal. The you know, Money Musk, classic case, you know, that's a dance for the ones. And if you have six to eight couples, everyone can get to be a one. But as you get to the 80s and dancing starts to become much more popular and people are discovering it at festivals and there's 30 couples in line, 
if you have if you're the last couple in line in 30 couples and the dance is money musk or chorus jig or rory o'more very unequal dances you're never going to get to do the cool stuff so choreographers start to change the dances that they're writing. Gene Hubert is a classic case. Start writing dances that work to keep everybody active and the dance shifts. Um, people start going to dances for different reasons. At your community dance back in the day, back in Dudley's day, you know, Dudley always laments that there's not farmers and truck drivers and you know, mill workers coming to the dances. I keep saying, Dudley, we don't have truck drivers and farmers and mill workers. People are, you know, it's now information workers coming to dances. And so back in the day, people didn't come to a dance to get their exercise. Their daily life was filled with hard physical work. Dance was a social occasion, which is why in Nelson up through the 60s, men would come to dance wearing a a dress coat and a white shirt and a tie. You dress up to go to the dance. And then the hippies showed up and everything changed. And now people come to dances with three changes of t-shirts and their, their sweatbands and their running shorts. They're coming to get exercise. And yeah, it's, it's a much different environment than going to the gym. So looking at how when I started, there were maybe 20 basic figures. And if you knew those figures that would carry you through five years of dancing. And when I've made lists more recently, it's more like 40 to 45 figures. So the dancing, the choreography has changed. The social norms have changed. We never used to have beginner sessions. The callers would program really simple dances at the start and you'd learn what you needed. Uh, You've never struck me as a as a preservationist, as a sort of wanting to to continue for the sake of no. the form. You're much more interested in the dynamic processes and how and why things change and continue to yeah. change. And, well, dance, dance. <laughs> I interviewed Kate, Kitty Keller once, Kate Van Winkle Keller, um, who was an extraordinary dance historian. And she really made the point that dance doesn't exist in a vacuum. It's it's a social construct, and the the kind of dancing you do is reflect reflects the society in which it takes place. And the dancing that we did in the early '70s reflected that society. It reflected the whole back to the land movement, the hippies. It reflected Dudley and his personality. Um, and the dance scene today is very different, reflecting a different a different world. People coming to dances back then, there were a lot of people, a lot of the guys were carpenters because that's what, you know, is part of that whole country living. A lot of the people coming to dances now are, are IT people and they are used to using their brains and interesting ways. So dances are more complex, uh, much more interesting to people who are brain workers um, and who also want to get exercise, so get physical stimulation and mental stimulation. Um, so yeah, dance doesn't exist in a vacuum. No. You, I think, have, it's safe to say, a particular love for square dancing. Yeah, well, I love them all. I love yeah. them all. Um, I did this project collecting histories of contra dancing, and so that was basically from... 2000 to 2010. Um, so I ended up with 450,000 words 
um, 800 single-spaced pages of stories that I had collected uh, mostly through email. And that came out of uh, making the films. I did the film about McQuillan and then a film about Dudley. And there's always references to Ralph Page. And trying to get stories about Ralph Page, a lot of those people are no longer alive. And even at the time, were no longer alive. And part of me said, well, I'll keep trying to collect those stories, but at the least, I want to leave a good record of my generation, you know, the, the boomers, and because we're the ones who created that square dance, the contra dance boom, um, the, the, the Dudley expansion. So that's what led to collecting all these stories about contra dance diaspora. And how did contra dancing get out of rural New England and become this phenomenon across the country? So writing people and collecting the story, doing oral history without having to do transcriptions for the most part. It was great. I mean, occasionally someone would send me a letter. Uh, John Shoemaker out in St. Louis probably sent me 18-page letter, you know, so I'd have to type that in. But most of it was just email. Um, and the thought there was somebody at some point is going to want to write a history of this whole movement. And Mary Dart has her thesis on, and it focuses on choreography, but it's related to changes in society. Um, but I knew that whoever eventually was going to write that history needed more than membership lists from CDSS. And so my line was, let's collect the stories before we all end up in the, you know, the Alzheimer's units. Um, and so that was a very fulfilling project. And CDSS has a copy of that material, and the University of New Hampshire has it. I add to it occasionally, but after about 10 years, I figured, I've got a lot here. And that's when, let's see, somewhere in there I made the film about Ralph Sweet. Um, and I had interviewed Ralph not with the idea of making a film, but just because he was getting on and his was an important voice. And in the course of making the film about Ralph, it was a way to talk about square dancing because I knew enough at that point to know that squares were far more important in American social dance history than contras were. Um, and since Ralph was a square dance caller, a modern square dance caller for 20 years, as well as a contra caller and lover of traditional squares, it was a way of inserting that material into the Ralph video that would be seen mostly by contra dancers. I mean, contra dancers go to Neffa and they get very excited. There's the, the Neffa medley, the contra medley, and there's 400 people lined up for the contra medley. And it's like, wow, this is such a big thing. I remember talking to Bob Brundage, longtime square dance caller. He said, yeah, I remember being at the such and such place in Nebraska. And the band and I were backstage and the curtain opened up and we were ready to dance. And there I looked out at the hall and there were 800 squares all, all lined up, right? Just ready to go. And I did the math. 800 squares. And it was one of those moments where you just realize how big square dancing was. So in 2010, 2011 is when I started the Square Dance History Project. 
um, with the idea of just trying to collect material about the history of square dancing because there were a lot of square dance histories online that were pretty bogus. You know, it's all related. It goes back to Morris men and ritual sacrifices around sacred wells in England. And it's like, come on. <laughs> uh, I also knew that the best way to look at a dance form is to see it. And trying to write about square dancing. Yeah, you can say things, but the best way is to see it. So the... Uh, primary goal in the early years was to collect moving images of square dancing. And from the beginning, I was interested in presenting a wide view of squares, traditional squares from all parts of North America, modern squares, that whole modern square dance movement, the historical antecedents, quadrilles and cotillions that that fed into eventual squares and collecting moving images. And then along the way, well, let's also collect photographs and let's collect audio clips, etc. So at this point, there's close to 2,000 items in the, you know, our digital library available to anyone who wants to see it. And it's a good thing. And I think I've got a couple people who are agreeing to become administrators of it to keep it going and I think CDSS has agreed to continue the site so all those materials won't go away yeah I'd go to the Library of Congress and find videos find material they had and go through all the permissions and digitization etc so we have some we have some materials on there that are really wonderful to see and I go to it all the time you know when I how does this square go oh all right, I've got that on the site. And, oh, this is how Jonesy called it. Or this is how, you know, Dick Krause called it. Or, you know, and then you get to hear Lloyd Shaw. So that that led me into sort of deeper into squares. I knew New England squares. Um, 2011, we had a Dare to be Square at Brasstown, which was an extraordinary gathering. I had um, six six guys, as it turned out, on my central committee, I like to call them. Um, I wanted people who were experts in different areas of square dance and who had done research um, and published in one way or another. So I ended up with um, Phil Jamison and Bob Dalsimer, uh, Larry Edelman, Tony Parks, Bill Lichman, and Jim Mayo. Jim, alas, no longer with us. He died in the last couple of years. Jim was a, had started dancing with Ralph Page in the 40s and then went over to the dark side and became an early mod West modern square dance and was the first chair of Collar Lab and was on the Collar Lab board of, board of governors for... 40 years probably, something like that. So CDSS provided some extra money and Brasstown, John C. Campbell Folk School provided the rest. And all six of those people were at Brasstown in 2011. And CDSS provided money to hire a videographer. And we hired John Michael Sanguiller, a young dancer who also is a skilled videographer. And John Michael said, so what do you want me to do? 
And I had already read a talk that Mike Seeger gave about his, the film that he made with Ruth, Ruth Pershing called Talking Feet. And Mike said, when you're filming a, an individual dancer, like a clogger, a flat footer, you show the whole body, head to feet, and you just show it. And when you're showing a figure dance, like squares, you show the whole square. And that's it. And John Michael has made some amazing videos. His videos of the Great Bear Groove are among the absolute finest examples of the excitement you get at being at a hot contra dance. Um, I mean, he'll. I was there calling one year, and we did the same dance, I think, three different times throughout the weekend so that he could film it from different angles and edit it together just beautifully. I said, John Michael, I don't want you to do any of that. I just want you to find a good square and stay on him. And he's a good enough dancer that he could realize right away, ooh, this square is having troubles, and he'd pivot and get a square. So you're seeing, we have 100 videos from Brasstown 2011. Something like three quarters of the people who came to that weekend were callers. So you get to see if you will allow me, some of the creme de la creme of the calling crowd. And you get to see some of them make mistakes. There's one wonderful sequence where Tony Parks, who is an extraordinary caller, is out there dancing and he's confused. It's like, yes, it happens. It happens to everybody. Um, and you get to see all these dances from different traditions. I mean, Bob and Phil are calling dancers from Southern Appalachia. Bill Lichman is calling dances from the Southwest. Um, and in particular for me, being exposed to more dances from Southern Appalachia was a, was a real treat. I had read about the dances, but actually getting to dance them, it's like, oh, this is fun. And so every so often now I get to call dances with a band that is an honest to goodness, old time band. And what I love the first time it happened, I found, I found the music unlocked a little door in my brain and my mouth started coming out with all kinds of patter that had never come out before. You know, promenade your partner around, make that Bigfoot jar the ground had never once emerged from my mouth when the band was playing St. Anne's Reel. But when they're playing Yellow Barber or, you know, some other classic Southern tune, it's just because listening to these dances over the years, that's the that patter was associated with a certain musical sound. So that's been really fun. And now with this series that I'm calling in Plymouth, New Hampshire, which wants traditional Northeastern singing squares, I'm getting to call all these dead, simple, lovely singing squares um, and having a great time. I love it. I love <laughs> it. Uh, I, I have spent a lot of enjoyable hours scrolling through that site it's just a, a treasure trove and just the fact that it's just available online you know it's it's just wonderful yeah and and you do it because a it's useful but mostly it's so satisfying to learn all this stuff yeah yeah you know? it enriches yeah enriches it so much um you know just hearing about all of these these different settings 
uh, in which you're, you're calling and making dance happen and all of these different perspectives you have on it as a caller, as an organizer, a historian. But I, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about what, what is it that the caller does and what, what are kind of some of your core tenants and, and principles that you have come to hold as a caller over, over the years? Well, Ralph Page said, describing the caller, he said, the buck stops here. And so I feel that, um, that you are, you're the person in charge of sort of orchestrating the whole evening and making sure that, that it works, that the dancers have fun, that they're successful, that the new dancers feel welcomed and the experienced dancers have something to challenge them or that they can go away feeling like they got their money's worth, that the band can shine to its fullest so that they really, they're, they're not being forced into awkward boxes, um, and that I can have fun up there. So, you know, that I, I think of Todd Whittemore, who doesn't want to call if he can't do singing squares. I mean, it's like that's what gives him pleasure. And if he can't have fun as a caller. So I don't want to be in a situation as a caller where I'm not having fun. Um, I've turned down some gigs where there was a band that was playing that's a perfectly good band, but I did not like their music. And so I don't want to be on stage for three hours or for a weekend with a band whose music I don't particularly enjoy. Other people love that band. That's that's great. Um, so making sure the musicians are going to have fun, the dancers are going to have fun, and, I, and I'm going to have fun. That's important. Um, I want people to come away feeling that they've had some things that they're very successful at, and I, I'm not averse to throwing in a challenge here or there. Um, I like to have variety in programs. Um, if I'm hired to call an evening or a, a weekend that's all conscious, I can do it. Um, I'd much prefer a, a organizers who say, yeah, we're open to you calling this. I mean, the, the Belfast Main Dance is a wonderful example where they have their expectations really clearly spelled out. We would like mostly an evening of Contras, but we're certainly open to you calling some other things in the course of the evening. And I love it when I'm working with groups that have thought about what they want and are able to explain that so clearly. It's really harder to walk in and someone just says, well, you know, we want you to call an evening of dance. Well, <laughs> what do you want? Um, I like being able to include squares. Um, if it's a mostly contra crowd, I won't presume to do lots of squares, but I like to include that. I like to have a mixer. I like to be able to feel that I can throw in some oddball little dance, a five-person dance or a five-couple dance or something like that. So with, within that, I try to learn as much as I can about who's going to be on the dance floor. You know, you talk to callers who have worked with that particular group, and you try to come up with a program that is going to have something for everybody. Mm-hmm. Or are, are there any things you would say are are difficult or challenging in in taking that role as the caller of of having the buck stop with you? There are occasionally places where 
people expect the caller, this is rare, but they want the caller to deal with discipline issues. And that's not the call. I mean, Ralph Page used to do that. He used to kick people out of the dance floor. You know, you in that square, you're doing it wrong. Get off the floor. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to do that. But there are places rarely now. I think most communities really thought about this and understand that if there are issues with the standard ones, creepy male dancers who are in, you know, just don't respect their partners or neighbors' boundaries. It's not the caller's job, I hope, to deal with such people. That's the committee's job. Um, but I think I think increasingly the last, I don't know, five or ten years, dance communities have recognized that they have a responsibility to to find good ways of, of encouraging good behavior and dealing with individuals who don't conform. I remember in Norwich we had a dancer who was who kept violating the boundaries and we finally told that person, no, you're not welcome here anymore. And then they moved to another community and we heard they were doing the same thing elsewhere. It's it's hard. It's hard. you know, we like we're such a warm, open, generous, welcoming community. But we need to be safe and and that's the organizer. So the couple times where I've been in a position where people were expecting the caller to deal with that as a visiting person coming in, that's not a reasonable expectation. And that, that was uncomfortable. Yeah, that's hard. And and uh, and it's also, I think, it's just a question of what's feasible. I mean, the caller is, is juggling a lot of things. And I, yeah, I also really appreciate, like you were saying, communities who have thought about this and articulated and formed some really clear sort of systems and, and procedures. Guidelines, you know, signs up in the hall, buttons identifying the committee, blah, blah, blah. I mean, all of that now is much more common. Um, yeah, and, and you know, being able to clue the caller into the existence of, of those systems and have them be a part of it. You know, I, I was just at the Bida dance and they have a very clear system that I can help reinforce from the mic, uh -huh. you know, because that is one thing about the caller is you are, I have often said, you're the loudest voice in the room. You're, you're, you are kind of the main focal point at, at, uh, you know, at the times when you need to be. And that can be a powerful way to kind of impart some, some safety messages and things like that. But you can't be expected to then, you know, follow through and, and uphold them. So being able to identify those people yeah. people is really helpful. It's hard. There are, I mean, I, I'm not out calling regularly on the circuit. I've never been a, a traveling caller. People, you know, there are people, well, you've done some of that, Mary, and um, there are other callers who are out there all the time going, and I've never... I've never done a tour with a band where we sort of went around and for several weeks did things. One of the things that from time to time you, you're calling in a community that still has what what is termed center set syndrome. And that's hard for me as a caller. Um, if you have a group of dancers who are so caught up in their own personal experience that they that they have lost sight of the bigger picture and so a hall where there's a long and crowded center set and two short sets on the side where the new people tend to end up they need those experienced dancers with 
good attitude to help them for the long term, if for nothing else than for the long term health of the dance series to make it possible for those people who want to dance. But you can't you can't get preachy from the mic. You can encourage people to go. And when people won't move and you have 20 couples in one set and five in another and five in another, it's just really hard. Um, and it's not often that I'm in communities where that's the case, but every so often that happens and that's hard. Mm-hmm. You asked what's hard. That's that's a hard one. Yeah. Sometimes what's hard is being paired with a band. This doesn't happen much now because I've gotten better about saying no. Being paired with a band that really is interested in showing off what they do and don't understand that, yeah, um, you're there for the dancers. And I really believe that I'm there for the dancers and the band. I remember talking to a wonderful wonderful band once and I gave them a signal for two more times and they shook it off because they had a three-tune medley in mind that was going to be on their album and they wanted to play each of the three and they were wonderful musicians they had core they all were dancers they knew how to choreograph the the pulse the rise the fall etc but it was time to stop that dance, and we had a we had a discussion afterwards. <laughs> Isn't it so interesting how we're we're, you know, it's just such an interesting collaboration between the yeah. caller, the band, the yeah, and the band the dancers. You know, they wanted they wanted for people to hear their cooler, and it was a wonderful area. I heard it when it came out on the CD, and it was a wonderful set, but. It would have been nice if they had told me beforehand. And one of the things I learned is I need to check in with the band. Do you have something that you are committed to doing this time so I can tell you when we're a third of the way through instead of half the way through? So you learn, and usually you learn by making a mistake and you jot a note on your card or a mental note. Alaman left and do the grand right and left. Go round the ring and meet your partner promenade. You promenade back home, then swing with your own. Deep in the heart of Texas. Oh well, the first couple swing in the middle of the ring. Six hands around, six hands around you do. First couple make an arch, gent two, lead them through. Deep in the heart of Texas, you do. Hey, take a little walk, go all over the floor. Take a little walk and walk around some more. You're going up north and you're going down south. Deep in the heart of Texas, go round. Hey, take a little walk, go all over the state. Take a little walk, you're all doing great. But it's time to go home to your own square deep in the heart of Texas right there. Well, put your You were telling me earlier about your your most recent documentary projects that you oh. did. You did the Contra Diaspora, you did, you did square, square Dance, Dance History. history right. Yeah, and as and part you... of that I did a whole thing. There was no there was no website for the Square Dance Hall of Fame. There is a Square Dance Hall of Fame call a modern modern square dance callers. So I did a website about that. That was that was a fun project. My my latest one, the one that's just now hitting the streets, is a thing called A Hand for the Band. 
and it's a celebration of musicians. So I've done, I've done, I've done contra dance history and now square dance history, and now it's a look at dance history through the musicians who, the criteria for being on this project where you had to be a musician or a band who played for contra or square dances, who came relatively early, and that's a loose term, in the life of a particular community's revival of dance history, and who recorded. And the recorded part was in part, I mentioned earlier about the Square Dance History Project, the importance of having moving images. Well, the same with a band. Instead of just writing about a band's music, I wanted people to hear it. So from the get-go, the idea was you'd get to see an image of their first album. You'd learn who the personnel was and their instruments and what year and where they were. Um, you'd have comments from musicians or about the band, and you'd be able to hear an audio clip from a, a full track from their first album. And it's awkward because a lot of bands look back at their first album and are like, oh, don't use that one. Use our third album. But for, you know, consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds. There's Ralph Waldo Emerson. Um, for the most part, the bands included in that. Um, it's, their, it's their first album. That started when I, I was giving these dance history talks and I'd give them locally. I'd give them, um, at when, if I was on staff, at a weekend or a week. And then during the pandemic, I was giving dance history talks online. And there was often a section, if I was focused on contra dancing, where I'd talk about changes in the music over time. And the examples that I was drawing on were all, or almost all, New England bands. Because obviously, what else could there be? I mean, if we're talking contra dance history, it's... New England bands. And as I'm giving talks to nationwide audiences, um, I realized, you know, maybe I need to be a little, um, spread a broader net. So I said, all right, well, let's let, this is me talking to myself. Well, I know all the New England bands, which turns out not to have been true. <laughs> um, but let's see who else was out there early on um, who played for dances and who recorded, thinking that I might find a dozen or maybe two dozen other bands. And by early on, it varies because if you're talking Boston area, there's dancing there certainly in the 70s. If you're talking in West Podunk, Nebraska, it, it's a much newer thing. So it's not an absolute earliest, it's earliest for a community. So I thought, let's see who I can find. And I defined it, again, contras or squares, because, again, I think they're both an important part of the mix. And I went looking. And as of today, today, mid-January, when the site is refreshed, we'll have 300 bands on the site. Um, and I discovered this wealth of bands out there going back even into the 70s, where I was thinking, well, it's all New England. Well, it's not, especially if you're defining it as contras and squares, because squares are so deeply rooted in American 
American society. So you have the Bucksnort Barn Dance Band in, in Gainesville, Florida, in, with a recording in the 70s, and they were doing square dances down there. And you have the Deseret String Band out in Utah. And you have Cousin Curtis and the Cash Rebates in St. Louis, who are still playing for dances 50 years later. Um, and so all this extraordinary wealth of material, which is now available for people to see. And so we have, since so many of them, I was able to get in touch with people and have their comments. It's another way into music and dance history. I mean, some of my favorite moments where I'd write someone and I'd say, so I'm interested in this album you recorded 43 years ago, blah, blah, blah. And they'd say, how did you ever hear of that? I thought no one knew that album outside of this narrow area. I said, well, you know, people brought it to my attention and can you send me a clip from this? And, and I'd love some comments. And they'd say, geez, I should talk to my bandmates. I haven't talked to them in 10 years. And so they would reach out to their bandmates and they'd each send comments in. And so it's been, personally, it's been this amazing education and it's given me a really deep appreciation of old time music. And if you're in New England, in the contradance world, you don't get a lot of old time. In fact, Larry Unger will talk about how hard it was for Uncle Gizmo to get hired as a band because they didn't have a piano. Um, and they were getting hired in the South where people knew Larry as a coffeehouse performer or Kathy Mason with the Dead Sea Squirrels, which is pretty much an old-time band, talking about some resistance in New England to that. Well, other parts of the country... The Midwest, old time, has been part of the contradance scene forever. Dylan Buston took New England contradances with him to Bloomington and formed this unholy alliance because he wanted live music and all people there were playing was West Virginia or Southern Indiana tunes. And so Petronella got grafted onto old time music. And you can see videos of people dancing Rory O'Moore to John Brown's Dream. I mean, it's this wonderful um, mismatch of dance and stuff. But that's sort of, uh, my understanding is that's still very common in the Midwest. And in squares, of course, squares and old-time music have such a long connection together. So it's been fun learning about all that and then finding ways to share it with other people. And from the beginning, my, my vision, the vision thing, was that people would be able to look at this on a map that they could search geographically by zooming in and search chronologically. And I talked to a tech guy at Dartmouth who worked with me for a while, and he wasn't able to find a good way of doing it. And he said, well, what you really need to do is write a grant for forty or $50,000, and that'll buy you enough computing expertise to do this. And I didn't want to go through a process like that. So I asked around in the dance world, and a friend suggested Andrew Frock. Um, Andrew's a young guy. His dad's a caller. His mom's a fiddler. I've never met him. Um, and he's a couple years out of school as a computer science major. And he said, oh, yeah, this sounds like fun. So he's done the programming to make it possible. So a handforthebandorg 
is there and we'll keep updating it and if people have other ones to add in it's i i heard from a guy in california that we've been corresponding and he says he says well i've spent many hours down this rabbit hole and then but you're missing so and so and so and so and so and so so it's been it's been great that's exactly what we hoped when we made the site available is that other people would say oh you should put so and so and then people writing in saying i think we should be there well yeah you you've got a band and you go back to you know 1993 it's just that we have four other bands from the late 70s or early 80s in that area so no disrespect intended but we're going to just stick with those because i'm not trying to showcase every single band <laughs> right you're kind of looking at this, I'm, this I'm, snapshot of kind of whoever the was seeds whoever of... was early in a particular area yeah, yeah. and it, the the challenge is that some bands have been in an area playing for 40 years and then finally got around to making an album. I mean, we all know that going into a recording studio is a lot of bands have fallen apart <laughs> when they decide to make a recording. Yeah, it's um, a hard prospect. It's a, it's a hard, it's a daunting task. And so this is not in any way, these are the important bands. Some of the best bands that people have spoken about never recorded the band that was the Polecats, which was the house band for the Chicago Barn Dance uh, for decades, never recorded as that band. So they're not there. And we all, you've been in places, I've been in places where it's just a particular assortment of people who get hired for a given night. And it's one of these quintessential glorious moments that we all feel, you know, you were describing your experience last night at, at your dance where it's just this incredible experience. And many of those are just, they're not there. We, we've had them, but that's not what you can capture in this. And I'd had to have the recording criterion because otherwise it would be too big a project. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know my limits. Yeah, right. You have to have some, some creative constraints. Well, I've gotten some pushback. A... How come so-and-so is not on there? Well, you know. This someone is the said, container. Yeah, yeah, someone someone said, you know, so are you going to expand this? And I said, you know, to include all the bands? I said, you're welcome to. <laughs> Go for it. I will cheerfully watch your website. <laughs> so, And so. Are, are you pretty much a sort of a self-taught documentarian? Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's such a vast uh, array of skills that, that are required to put this all together. You're talking about research, oral history. You know, I have to assume some kind of database record management system, videography. Yeah, the video. I, for years, I felt that someone should make a movie about Ted Sinella. He was such an important figure. And then Ted died. He wasn't even 70 when he died. And it was one of those, oh, I guess someone could do it, but he's dead, so it's not going to include his voice. And the line I've used is when you say, when you say, I wish someone would do such and such, the time to say that is when you're standing in front of the mirror and you realize if something should be done and you feel something should be done, then by God, go and do it. And that's when I looked around the, the, the universe and said, well, who should I make a movie about? Who, Ted's not here anymore. Who else? And that's, that's when I picked on McQuillan. 
um, and did my first film about about Mac. Um, paid to eat ice paid cream. Paid to eat ice cream, yeah. And Mac, it took three or four times before he agreed to be part of that. He, he didn't want me to do it. It was drawing attention. And finally, after the third or fourth time, he said, you really want to do this, don't you? And I said, yeah. He says, all right, I'll do it because you want to do it. And, you know, that's just the way Mac was. Um, and I knew, you know, I had done VHS stuff with my kids and I had made a movie once with video where I was editing because I had one deck with one thing and another deck, a VHS deck with another feeding into a third deck. And, and then, of course, when you make a mistake, you have to go back and do it. And then along came digital video. It's like, whoa! It's word processing for images and sounds. It's just like, oh, this is cool. So I, so I taught myself how to do that. I mean, I bought a, I bought a good camera. I did a lot of research. And I remember going around to all these people saying, well, how do you do this? And how do you do that? And, and a local friend who's a videographer said, David, just take the damn camera and shoot some footage and look at it. It'll tell you exactly what you need to know. And so I stopped worrying about manual settings for this and this. And I put it on automatic. And lo and behold, the you know, the engineers, the Sony engineers were a lot smarter than I was. And <laughs> so you learn, you make mistakes and you learn. You learn by doing. And and you realize, you know, it's not perfect. But imagine that you were a, an avid blues collector and you found a recording that no one knew existed, that no one had ever heard of, but it's clear that it was Robert Johnson. And it was a 78 that no one knew about. And you listened to the recording, and yeah, there were scratches and cracks and pops and all these other things, but there it is. You have the recording. So you have the recording. And so whatever you do with any of these projects, you do the best you can. And if it's not perfect, it's, you know, we have, we have, we have footage of, people from years ago or recordings and it's better to have that than not to have it so mm -hmm. my wish is that all the people who are shooting video now or doing recordings find a place for that to go that they work with their local libraries build up an archive in new hampshire new england we're really fortunate to have the new hampshire library of traditional music and dance and vermont you you work for the vermont vermont folk life and just to find ways of preserving our our traditions um this project the the, the one we were talking about a hand for the band it doesn't include it doesn't have don messer it doesn't have jean carignan it doesn't have ralph page it doesn't have schroeder's playboys or andy de Jarlis, people who for years before were playing for dances it's really the people who are playing during the last 50 years or so the the revivals and that's that's sort of the period that i know and so that's the part that i'm documenting yeah like you like you said about calling you have to find the things that make it fun for you yeah too. yeah this is the part that i'm interested in and, and where i know something about it so yeah well we are so lucky that you have this this spark and that you looked in the mirror and said okay <laughs> 
it's me because you just continued to create these these delightful vast records that I think are gonna you know they're gonna be become more and more important as time goes on well I hope other people enjoy them I've certainly learned a lot we definitely do um well I have three questions that I usually close with the first which you've already mentioned is this uh this tendency for callers to have a, a collector or a curator uh, mindset. And as I say this, I'm, I'm looking around the room that we're sitting in and we're just surrounded by by dance books and binders. And and so, you know, I think I'm, I'm not off the mark here when it comes to you. Um, but I'm curious, I've been asking everyone that I interview how you keep your dances and a little bit about dance notation. So you've already mentioned like a yard's worth of cards. Yeah, I can, I can show you. I mean, I started out obviously doing my contra dances are all on cards, three by five cards. Initially, I was typing on the cards with a, I still have a manual typewriter. It's up in the attic now. And then it was computer generated, but cut and paste onto three by five cards. Um, my squares, my early squares are on cards, but most of that has now gotten moved onto my lap, onto an iPad. Um, and my English, which are, English was a pain because you had the Playford ball, but then there were all these other dances. So I started putting them in binders and, that was fine if I was just working locally, but when you go off to a dance camp and you're carrying this enormous weight of stuff. So for English, I use um, a program that Ralph Kanapa wrote, um, and that's, that's the program that I use um, where I import PDFs, and it's basically, he's it's a database, and um, you can categorize things, and then, so you search. And all right, I want a three couple, three couple dance that's easy, and it's in either A minor or E minor, and boom, up, up it comes. And it's great because I can go off to a dance camp with my programs in mind, but when I need to make a change, it's, I'm, you know, I'm carrying fifteen hundred English dances with me, and increasingly I've started putting squares on that as well. And I don't, I. I've got some Contras on there, but for the most part, Contras, they're all on cards. So I, I can carry a, a, a week's worth of dance cards really, really easily. Um, so different different formats for different styles. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and I assume you're still collecting dances? Yeah. Yeah. People are still writing dances. There are still wonderful dances. Um, yeah. Every so often a dance, less with Contras. Um, I remember being at a dance weekend. I was in Louisville, and Gay Gay Pfeiffer was calling, and she called "Trip to Wilson," Will Mentor's dance. I was dancing, and it was like, "Whoa, what's this?" And so I was sure to grab that dance, and I'm sure other callers who had the same. You know, it was just diff- different enough, and it's also got a bit of an Englishy feel to it. Um, and I'm really interested in the cross fertilization of how. I've done whole workshops of how alien influences. Contra, contra dancing is like the English language, which is it steals or borrows from everything. So the the piece that 
Alison Thompson and I wrote about the dolphin hay, you know, starting in Scotland and working its way into English country dance. And now there are contra dances with dolphin hays in it. You know, contra dancers and contra dance choreographers are really good at that lifting from other traditions. Uh, doesn't work as much the other way. Uh, uh, there are some, David, David Smuckler has a, has a dance called Bastille Day, which has circulate in it, which comes from modern Western square dancing into contra dancing and now into English country dance. So Amazing. It's, uh, yeah. Um, do you have any pre or post dance gig rituals, things that you kind of do to warm up or wind down? Um, before, usually starting the day before, I try to drink a lot of water. I learned that from Tony Parks. Yeah. He said, you really need to keep your vocal cords hydrated. Um, and he says, having a drink right before you go on isn't the same. So that's something I consciously think about is getting a lot of water in my system. I try to get a lot of extra sleep the night before a gig, but that often doesn't happen. Um, I mean, I like getting to the hall early, um, especially if I'm working with a band that I don't know. I really want to get there and talk to them and meet them and schmooze a little, just get a sense of who they, who's, who's, who's the person I need to communicate with? Who's the, the band leader who's sort of directing things? Um, if I'm in a place I don't know, I want to really meet my hosts, meet the organizers, make them feel appreciated. I think the the organizers are the heroes of the dance movement. Um, you know, at the end of an evening or during, you know, we clap for the callers and we clap for the band and we clap for the sound people, but it's really the organizers. And people who have never done that job don't, do not appreciate how much work it is. Um, you know, people people go to George Marshall's tropical dance vacation and just have a wonderful time. And George is the master of being calm and smooth, but it's the classic case. You look at the duck just swimming serenely on the surface and underneath those, those flippers are busy paddling. And it's that way with any, I mean, a dance weekend that runs smoothly, runs smoothly because a lot of people have done a lot of work and are doing it even during the weekend. And if they're doing it well, you as a dancer aren't even aware of it. So I want to get there and make sure that the organizers understand that I really appreciate them. You know, I wouldn't be there without them. After a gig, I'm usually pretty wired. Um, you know, when I was doing, when I was traveling a lot in New England, I mean, as a caller, when you're starting out, you have to do a lot of traveling. You do a lot of gigs for not much money. You know, the usual thing, oh, you don't get paid much, but you get to drive hundreds of miles, <laughs> the standard, standard yes. line. And so coming back from a gig a couple hours away, I'd have a CD going for years. It was the second Air Dance album, the Flying On Home album. That was my go-to you know, just high energy to keep me sort of pumped. And then by the time I got home, I'd be, the adrenaline would be sort of out of my system. Um, yeah, it's hard to dance weekend to sort of slow down because you usually have to be up early the next morning and I need to get to sleep. And I'm usually pretty, if it's gone well, I'm really excited. I mean, the adrenaline is flowing. You're feeling it. You're on stage. 
you're seeing all these people out there having a great time you're right up close to the music and you know you're having fun you and i were talking earlier before we started recording you know you teach the dance you call it a few times and you're keeping an eye and periodically you'll come in with a call if you see a, some people who need help but mostly there's not much to do when you're calling calling someone came up to me at the flurry once and said oh this must be really hard and i said wait i'm calling the 350 400 people out there i said this is not these are hardcore dancers i teach it i call it a couple times i've got the great bear trio up here or some amazing band I said this is not i said hard hard is calling a wedding with an open cash an, an, an open bar that's serving hard liquor the hardest I said, that's that's hard work <laughs> and i do a lot of gigs like that too so you know calling for a regular old contra dance or a dance weekend that's not hard. you know the hard part is programming that's the hardest part once you once you've got your basic collar chops down programming is the hardest part figuring out what the right dance is for this group so mm -hmm. so most post dance rituals is trying to get to sleep always and introvert or extrovert ah you, i've been i've been following the series you're a listener yeah yeah i'm a what? reader i don't i don't listen to it. i don't do podcasts that's well that's why we do the transcripts i'm so grateful yeah. that you do i am so grateful that you do uh, and a shout out to our our wonderful ellen ben williams mom who helps uh, uh -huh. speaking of thanking our volunteers uh -huh. helps us correct the transcripts oh because is it done automatically and we, the, use, yeah. we do a digital we do a uh, automated transcription but then of course there are all a lot I've, of errors. I've tried those sorts of things yeah there's some fascinating uh, <laughs> ai errors um i don't know uh you know i thought about that as i read it every every month uh hearing about it um when I go to a dance event, I love schmoozing with people. I love talking to people. Um, I don't, I mean, I'm not an extrovert in the sense that I don't go to parties looking forward to hanging out with a lot of people. My solution, solution to dealing with a party is to find a person and go off in a corner and have a conversation with a person. Um, I spend a lot of time at home. I'm sitting up at my computer working on all this stuff, and I'm very happy doing that. I'm, we live in a lovely house at the dead end of a dirt road, and so I'm very comfortable doing that. I like the balance that I have where I can go out into the world and be social and then get away from it. So I don't know where that puts me in your, you know, you have to, you'd have to bring a psych major and give me the tests. <laughs> exactly. No, no. And there's no wrong, no wrong answer. No, I know answer. that. I know that. It's just, just a curiosity, yeah. but yeah. yeah. I've, I, I feel so fortunate. I mean, I've been part of this world now for this dance world for 50, 50 years, 50 plus years. And I've been a dancer. I've been an organizer. I call. I get to call in such different settings. And it's just been such a rich part of my life. And I feel so fortunate to have had it there. So thank you, everybody. <laughs> for keeping all this stuff going and we are fortunate to have you in that world thank you so much for having having me here in your cozy house at the end of the lane and uh thank you from the mic listeners
we're done. Thanks so much to David for talking with me. You can check out the show notes for today's episode at cdss.org podcasts. This project is supported by CDSS, the Country Dance and Song Society, and is produced by Ben Williams and me, Mary Wesley. Thanks to Great Meadow Music for the use of tunes from the album Old New England by Bob McQuillan, Jay Norzachowski, and Deanna Stiles. Visit cdss.org podcasts for more info. Happy dancing. The views expressed in this podcast are of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect those of CDSS.